Well, as you've turned to Galatians today, I want to let you know we are deviating from our study in Genesis. We're going to come back to that foundational book after the holidays are over in in January, but we're going to take a little break, and for four weeks, we're going to look at some ideas, some words that perhaps are defined a little differently from God's perspective than from ours. How many of you have seen the movie The Princess Bride? You seen that? All right. You either like it or you don't, I guess. I, I find that a, a fairly humorous movie. It's a takeoff on a traditional fairy tale and uh, really well done, I think. But there's a, a character. She's a damsel in distress. Her name is Buttercup. And she is kidnapped early on in this movie by three bungling criminals, the ringleader of which is a rather annoying little guy named Vizzini. And Vizzini thinks that he's smarter than everybody in the world. Everybody he meets is a fool. And so this guy has a scheme uh, upon their kidnapping of Buttercup. And he is thwarted at every turn because Buttercup's one true love, the man in black, is hot on their trail. And he is going to rescue Buttercup. And every time Vizzini sees him at a distance, thinking he had eluded him, uh, lo and behold, there he is. And he utters his catchphrase, inconceivable, is what he says, over and over, to the point where one of his henchmen says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And that's the notion. And you know what? There are words and concepts that you and I use that we embrace in the Christian life that are not as they ought to be. We've got a skewed perspective, and we need to have God's perspective. And so that's what this series is all about, in God's eyes. And we're going to be looking at four concepts over the next uh, several weeks. And today we're going to look at freedom. Freedom. The theme of Galatians is freedom. And Paul is addressing something here because he had gone up into Galatia. He had preached the gospel. People got saved in droves. Paul leaves, and in his absence, there steps into the void this group called the Judaizers. And they proceed to, uh, to launch the first heresy of the Christian church. And uh, they are claiming to be Christians, but in, in actuality, they are Jews that hate Paul. And so they prey upon these Gentile Christians, these newbies, and they come and they say, hey, you know, it's, it's, it's nice that you follow the Jewish Messiah. We're really happy about that. But you know, uh, that's not enough. You, you, you know that, don't you, that you follow the Jewish Messiah? You also, in order to have real freedom, in order to have real salvation, since you're following the Jewish Messiah, you need to follow the Jewish law. I mean, you need to be circumcised, you see. It's not just Christ, it's Christ plus circumcision. It's Christ plus the diet guidelines and codes. It's Christ plus uh, observance of the rituals and, and the feasts and the fasts and well, the law. And so they are adding the law to salvation. They're adding to the gospel. And Paul says, I can't let that stand. i got to write a letter. And he writes the book of Galatians, and he says to them in chapter 3, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? When you received the Holy Spirit, did you receive the Spirit by faith and by hearing, or did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law? And obviously the answer is they received him by faith. 
And uh, to clear up their confusion, he does a little history lesson for them. He takes them back into the Old Testament, and he talks about Abraham. And he says, Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him for righteousness. He didn't do anything to earn it. And he talked about Moses. And he said, you know, Moses said, cursed be anyone who does not obey all the things written in this book of the law. Therefore, what that means is you can't be justified through obedience because none of us could keep the law. And he said, even the prophet Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by faith, not works. And we as modern Christians hear that and we go, amen, Paul, preach it, let them have it. Well, now, wait a minute. How about this? In the church today, do we ever slip into a mindset of earning the favor of God? Hmm. Yeah, we belong to a church that teaches, for by grace you're saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We'd, we'd sign our name happily to a doctrinal statement to that effect, and yet we've got a way of thinking whereby we've got to be good enough. I've got to be this. I've got to do better. I've got to earn God's favor. Really easy to slip into that. To really be free, I've got to work for it. And we are guilty of that. And here's what I want you to know is that that is adding to the gospel. That does not result in freedom. And at the top of your notes, the big idea here is that the difference between freedom and bondage spiritually is the difference between faith and law. Faith and law. To have real freedom, you've got to understand your salvation. And what we're going to see first in your notes, number one, is that salvation by faith alone is dependent on the unchanging nature of God. It's not dependent on what you do. It's dependent upon the unchanging nature of God. God made a promise to Abraham in 2000 B.C. And he says, I'm going to bestow salvation upon all, all of those who eventually put faith that, that this offspring that will come from you, he is going to be a blessing to all the nations. And so I will, I will promise a blessing for anyone who puts their faith in that offspring. And then 500 years later, you got another guy that comes along named Moses, and Moses delivers the law. But Paul's saying that law does not change God's original covenant with Abraham. Because once a covenant is formed, you don't add a condition. How many of you know that's true? You've, you've maybe entered into a contract with somebody before. Maybe you bought a house. Maybe you signed a business deal with somebody. How would you react if weeks, months, or even years down the road, they come back to you and they go, I, I, I'd like to add this in right here. You say, whoa, 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 no, 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 we have, we have a contract. We both signed this. It's, it's done. It's ratified. And so Paul gives an illustration along those lines. In verse 15, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. He's saying, even with a human treaty, this doesn't work. You sign on the dotted line, nobody just casts that aside. Nobody changes that. You know, your understanding of the original contract is ironclad, unless way down at the bottom, they hand you a magnifying glass and they say, we need you to read the what? The fine print. The fine print. You ever uh, see those commercials on TV at night, you're watching some show and this drug commercial pops up? You know, I call them the final run commercials because they're products geared toward people on their final run through life. You know, they, they come on during CBS programming for some reason. I don't know what that's about. But 
you know, it's, 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 it's a drug or something, and it's geared toward a certain type of person in a certain phase of life, and it promises a certain quality of living, and it's, it's for some drug called salatexafan or something like that, and the commercial starts, and there's a couple in their twilight years, and they're on vacation in Europe, and they're maybe they're riding bicycles down the street, and there's pleasant music playing, and the narration, the voiceover starts, and it says, salatexafan significantly increases your chances of living longer versus traditional therapy. And you're like, that's nice. It's nice to live longer. Good for them. And then it continues, and it shows them taking a little boat ride together. And the voiceover continues. It says, Salatexafan works with your immune system. And you're like, oh, good. Immunity is nice in that phase of life. Good for them. And then there's a scene with a grandfather, and he's building a little model airplane with his grandson, you know? And the music's playing, and the narration continues. By now, you're half watching, half paying attention, half listening. And it says, Salatexafan can cause your immune system to attack normal organs and tissues in your body. And affect how they work during and after treatment has ended. This may become serious and lead to death. And you're like, wait, what? It's to see your doctor right away. If you experience a worsening cough, chest pain, shortness of breath, diarrhea, severe stomach pain or tenderness, severe nausea or vomiting, extreme fatigue, dizziness, slurred speech, constipation, tingling in extremities, vertigo, profuse sweating, excessive thirst, swollen ankles, rash, confusion, fever, weakness, atomic halitosis, ruptured bladder, lycanthropy, mass hysteria, liquefaction of the eyes, spontaneous combustion, or gambling addiction. These are not all the possible side effects. Ask your doctor about salatexafan. Oh, I'll get right on that. Product may contain evil. I mean, why do they put all that in there? So they don't get sued. All right? And they're just hoping you'll, you'll be distracted by the scene of Grandpa Joe and little Jimmy building an airplane, you know? But the fine print has to go in at the beginning. It can't be added later. Once the contract is made, it can't be changed. So Paul's given this illustration. Now there's an application here. Verse 16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Offspring. And the word there is a singular word in the original language. In fact, Paul says it does not say into offsprings, uh, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. See, we're going back to the original contract. Paul wants to take him back, show him what God said to Abraham. Here's what he said. He said to your offspring, that's one, that's Christ. It's not many. And so he's saying uh, it's going to be through that one that the nations will be blessed. And so this is not salvation by law because it's only referring to an individual. That offspring is one man, Jesus Christ. Incidentally, the fact that Paul is making this argument on the basis of a single noun tells us something about the word of God. Every single word is inspired of God. We don't read the Bible and just look for the big ideas, the big concepts. This is verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture. Every word has merit. And he is saying, here's how we interpret this on the basis of the plurality or singularity of a single word. 
So I just think that's fascinating. But what, the point is that God tells Abraham, you've got a singular, a singular descendant, this child that's going to be born. He's going to come, as we've seen in Genesis, through Noah, through Shem, and eventually through Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and eventually Judah, and then through David, and then through Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gives birth to Jesus. In that seed alone shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Who are the nations? Well, a lot of them are represented in this room right here. Uh, we've got some Jewish brothers and sisters in this room, but a lot of us are the nations. We are the Gentiles, and we've been grafted in because of faith in that descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. We are uh, granted this because it started with Israel. He made a promise to Abraham, father of the Jewish race. Scripture says salvation is of the Jews. That's the words of Christ right there. And so it's granted now to you, Gentile, to believe in this Jewish Messiah. You say, I'm, I believe in a Jewish Messiah, but I'm a Christian. Yeah, you know what Christ means? It's not Jesus' last name. It's a term. It's Messiah. It's a messianic term. It refers to the Jewish Messiah. And so this promise was spoken in 2000 B.C., uh, we read it in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. Uh, it's given to Abraham. And Paul says, now let me interpret this for you. He goes on to verse 17. This is what I mean, he says. The law, which came 430 years later. So 2000 BC is the promise. 430 years later, he says, it does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. You don't get to add fine print later. That's not what the law is. Abraham gets this promise. 430 years later, you got a guy named Moses. So how did, that, how did we get to Moses from Abraham? Well, Abraham has a promise from God. He has a son. Son's name is Isaac. Isaac has a son. His name is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. We're going to read about them in Genesis when we get back into that book later on down the road. That saga will tell us they're all going to end up in Egypt. And now these dozens will become 2 million over 400 some odd years. And then who is it that's going to lead those descendants of Jacob out of Egypt? It's going to be this guy, Moses. And Moses will be given the law in about 1500 B.C. And Paul's point here is, you Judaizers are saying to the Gentiles, to the Galatians, yes, God promised salvation through the Messiah, but the law came. 430 years later, that's fine print right there. It's not just Christ. It's Christ plus circumcision. It's Christ plus strict dietary codes. It's Christ plus the holy feast, the fasting. Christ plus law. And Paul's argument is you can't do that. You don't add works to salvation. You don't, do, you don't add things in a human contract. You sure can't add it in a divine, eternal, immutable unchanging work of a holy God. Once God says it, once it's written, it's done. That's what amen means. So be it. You put a period on the end of that prayer. It's unchangeable. So the law does not invalidate the covenant that God already made is Paul's point. You don't nullify the promise. And he, he's saying if you try to add to that, you void out the whole thing. You can't make it work. You can't put new conditions on it. It doesn't work. You can't be saved by Christ plus works. 
Now, theoretically, if we said you're saved by grace through faith or you're saved by perfect obedience to the law, which, by the way, that's not a thing. But theoretically, if you kept the law, would you be saved? Well, if you could keep the law perfect, it would show that you didn't need salvation in the first place. But theoretically, it would be either or. It would not be both and. That doesn't work. If you put them together, the whole thing is void. It's, it, it's a contradiction in terms. It's like, it's like jumbo shrimp or, or Senate intelligence. You heard me, all right? No. Uh, in the Protestant Reformation, what was the key thought? Was it, was it faith? No, it was faith alone. Faith alone. So in verse 18, Paul says, For if the inheritance, what's that? That's the bestowal of the blessing that God promised Abraham. If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. It no longer comes by promise. You just canceled it. He's saying, you can't have law and promise, okay? But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So that's how it was first given. That is what it must remain. You don't change it. You don't put works in there. Uh, if it's based on law, it's not based on promise. That's simply what he's saying. If you're adding one thing to Christ, you're negating the promise. You say, well, I've got friends that, you know, I've got some Catholic friends and and some people from different backgrounds, Orthodox friends and whatnot, and they, they're good people. They love Jesus. They're really moral, but they do believe that they're earning their way. Are you telling me they're not going to go to heaven? If they're counting on their own righteousness, yes, that's what I'm telling you. You're like, well, that's harsh. I mean, it's, they only believe that a little bit, that it's just a little bit of them. It's a lot. They believe that it's, it's, it's mostly Christ, but, but part of it is, is them. You know, I had a friend years ago, he, uh, he claimed to have the recipe for the world's greatest chili. You know, the secret ingredient was? It was beer. He said it made it tastier, you know? And so he would have a bunch of people over, and he'd be cooking his chili, and he'd have a big old vat in front of him, and a lot of people in the room, he's got two cans of Coors right here. First can, he pours a little bit in, stirs it into the chili. Second can was empty. What's that for? Well, he also chewed tobacco. And so it would go like this. He's got people there. They're having, everybody's having a good time. There's music on, you know, a little pour, pour, stir, stir, talky, talky, laugh, laugh. You know, pour, pour, stir, stir, talky, talky, laugh, laugh. And then one time picks up a can. Oh, got them mixed up. Spit in the chili. Now, it's just a little bit. Just a little bit, you know. No, you know what he did? threw the whole thing out. You can't have that in the chili, you know? Otherwise, it's like, oh man, can't wait to try the world's greatest chili. What's that? Oh, that's a secret ingredient. I hope you enjoy my world-famous Copenhagen chili, you know? No, 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 no. A little bit, little bit ruins the chili. Well, a little bit of works ruins the promise, because you're adding to it. Why do we want to add to it so bad? What is this human need? I got I to gotta be part of this. I got to earn something. You know, I feel like we just want credit. That's our human nature, our ego. We want to say that we had something to do with it. But you know what? When you do that, you are offending God. 
It's an affront to God. You're making a statement about God. You know, God's good. He's just not good enough. Yeah, Jesus said it is finished, but uh, it wasn't completely finished. Turns out he needs my help. That's an offensive statement. I want you to imagine something horrific. Imagine your child was murdered. And the person responsible is convicted and sent to prison for life. And then years down the road, that person demands to be released on the basis that they swept and mopped the floors of that prison. How would you react to that? You'd be incensed. You'd be repulsed. You'd be disgusted. That's what my child's worth, uh, life is worth? A mopped floor? Are you kidding me? And yet... How much greater is this insult to God that we would try to attribute our salvation in part to the filthy rags that is our own brand of righteousness? Let me tell you something. If if that's you, if you believe that you can earn your way to salvation in any fashion, Christianity is not the religion for you. If you are hell-bent on making this about your own works, you're you're not a Christian, okay? Go be a Muslim. Go follow the five pillars. You know, go be a, a Buddhist and follow the eightfold path. Go be a, a Hindu and try to rack up some good karma for yourself. Come back on a higher plane. None of that's going to work for you, by the way. But if you can't get off the works wagon, you're not a Christian. There is no room in true biblical Christianity for somebody who thinks it depends on them. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're someone who believes that it depends on you and your name is Dave... You're not a Christian, you're a Davian. If your name is Bill, you're not a Christian, you're a Billion. If your name is Christy, you're not a Christian, you're a Christy. Well, it doesn't really work with Christy, but anyway, you get my point. So in verse 19, here's what Paul says in verse 19, why then the law? Why? He's anticipating their objection here. They want to know. You know, I used to teach at a college, and uh, I taught theology and whenever I'd say something that I knew the students didn't have that same background, you know, before I finished the sentence, their hands would go up. They wanted a clarification. So Paul, he knows what they're asking. Why then the law? Uh, why was it given? If the law doesn't save you, Paul, then why did God give the law? Some of you are wondering that. Why? Why, why give the law? In verse 19, he, he answers that. He says, it was added because of transgressions. It was added. I want you to underline the word added if you can. Greek word there is prosatethe. It means placed alongside. It does not mean take the place of. Placed alongside. That means uh, Moses did not replace Christ. Okay? The law comes in alongside the promise for a purpose. What purpose? Not salvation. Not salvation. It's because of transgressions, you see. And so in your notes number two, the law's purpose, you see, is not to save you. It's to make you savable. It's not to save you. It's to make you savable. What's that mean? What does it mean? Make me savable. Well, let me ask you, when do people come to Christ for forgiveness? They can't come unless they know they need to be forgiven. They got to know that they're a sinner. How are you going to know you're a sinner? All throughout the Old Testament, this is what the law does. It tells us you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. The law's purpose is to inform us of our guilt, to reveal our sin. It tells us over and over in different ways. You know, if you have lust in your heart, you're guilty. If you tell your brother, you fool, you're guilty. 
You violated the law. How far back do we need to go with this? In Genesis, we just talked about this. God told Adam, if you eat of that tree, in the day you eat of it, in the day, you will surely die. There's never a command by God that isn't accompanied by the assurance that if you violate that command, you're guilty. And there are repercussions for that. If you ask the average person on the street, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And most of them will say, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Really? Why? Well, I'm a good person, right? They think about morality. It's funny. The only time some people ever think about morality is if you ask them if they're going to go to heaven. Well, I'm a pretty good person. Otherwise, they don't care about morality, you know? Really, what, what, what is that? What is a good person, you might ask? They'd say, oh, you know, and off the top of their head, they've got enough religion in their background to say, well, somebody who, uh, who follows the Ten Commandments. Oh, okay, so you, you follow the Ten Commandments? I think most people think they do. Can I submit to you, we break every single one. Amen. We break every commandment. First of all, we take them out of context, but we break them. First and second commandments deal with not having other gods before the one true God, not having any carved images of gods. You ever put anything before God? Okay, you may not worship Baal or, or Marduk or any of those Old Testament false gods, but let me tell you something. Anything you think about more than Christ, that's your God. That's your God. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. How many of you, okay, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, <laughs> but do any of you play golf? Huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. By the way, this isn't just about cussing. I think this is, we think it's about specific words that we say. No, this is all forms of hypocrisy. Anytime you invoke the name of the Lord in a manner that is less than authentic, that's taking his name in vain. It happens all the time. It's happened this morning in this building. Probably while you were worshiping, some of you. Huh? Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. You keep that one? Some are like, well, now, well, hold up, Pastor Scott. I know you think you got us, but I'm here every Sunday. Oh, good. Well, the Sabbath is Saturday, so, you know. And by the way, this has nothing to do with church attendance. The Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, was a day of rest. And there was this whole litany of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath, and, uh, including, by the way, extinguishing a fire. You weren't allowed to do that on the Sabbath. So don't catch fire on a Saturday if you want to keep this command. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Any of you talk back to your mom or pa growing up, huh? I did it, but just once to my mother. I don't remember anything after that. Uh, the sixth and seventh commandment, you, you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. Some of you are like, aha, yep, check and check. I got those. I do those. Well, that's good, except Jesus really raises the bar on those commandments. In Matthew 5, he said, you've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, anyone angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Wow. You can murder someone in your heart. I've done it countless times while in ministry. Uh, <laughs> And he says, I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is what Jesus does. You see, he takes it up a notch. He goes, let's get it all out of the black and white so you don't think you get by on a technicality. Let me show you what this really speaks to. Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. You're like, well, I'm a lot of things, but I'm no thief. I am not a crook, you know. <laughs> well, I just wonder, 
I wonder, during the pandemic, any rolls of toilet paper from work ended, end up in the back of your car? God is listening. What does the scripture say in Malachi 3? Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? Where? In tithes and offerings. This implies you give inconsistently. God considers that stealing. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet. You ever want something that's not yours? I, uh, a few years back, we did a fall festival at my church, and I was in an 80s cover band. Yeah. I dressed up like Prince. I mean, I did the whole thing, right? We did Springsteen and The Cure and Tears for Fears. We covered all these awesome songs from back in the day. Uh, you know what song we did not do? You know, I wish that I had just seen this girl. Da, 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 da. So many commandments wrecked in that song. <laughs> we violated all of these. Nobody skates by on all of these. Uh, it's interesting when you think of when the law was given, when was that? Exodus, right? What's the next book after Exodus? Leviticus. There's going to be a quiz later. Leviticus. What does Leviticus deal with? Sacrifice. Why? For, for sin. You have to atone for the sin. He just gives you the law. In Exodus, he immediately gives you a sacrificial system to cover the sins because you're going to break the law. It's built into the system. You will fail. Nobody can keep the law. And so he was added because of transgression. And then in verse 19, it says, until, oh, until, we get an until, the law was added, until, I'm so grateful for the until, until what? Until who? Until who? Until the offspring should come. Who's the offspring? Jesus Christ, in whom the promise had been made, and it meaning the law was put in place through angels. That means it came from God. The law is not evil. It came from God. And it was put in place by angels by an intermediary. Who is the intermediary? That's, that's, that's a mediator. You know who that is? That's Moses. Moses was God's mediator that was appointed. He delivered the law, and then he mediates between God and man through the law to show us our sin. And to symbolize atonement for that sin until the chosen one would come. And he would make a sacrifice. And that sacrifice that he would make would be the last one that would ever need to be made. No more shedding the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. Jesus Christ is going to come. And when he's on the cross... Offering himself as that final sacrifice, that word that he utters on that cross in Aramaic, to tell us time, what does it mean? It is finished. It means paid in full. It means no more sacrifices. No more. You're free. You're free. You're free. He's the only one that could pull that off. We can't do it through the law. Cannot. Cannot. Oh, foolish Galatians. And then in verse 20, he says, Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. He's saying the kind of mediator Moses was is not the kind of mediator that Christ is because Christ is God. And he is one. 
Okay? A mediator involves two parties. That's mediation. You got this guy and you got this guy. You're going to do this and you're going to do that. And if he doesn't do that, then you, you have to do this or you don't have to do this. And it's a back and forth thing. Contract is two ways. A promise is one way. God does not make two-way promises. It's a one-way promise. He makes a promise. He keeps his word. And in verse 21, it says, Is then the law contrary to the promises of God? Here's another Example of Paul anticipating an objection. He knows what's going through their minds. They're already questioning him. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a cotton-picking minute, Paul. Are you dogging the law? Are you throwing Moses under the bus? Are you saying Moses is against God? He's like, no. No, I'm not saying that. I'm the only one here that is loyal to Moses. I'm the only one here that gets Moses. Your problem is you don't get it. He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He says, I'm not against the law. I understand the law. You don't understand it. He says, but the scripture, in verse 22, the scripture. Notice what he calls the law. He calls it scripture. You can't have more respect for something that is written than to say that's scripture. This is inspired. He says, this is inerrant, but it doesn't save. The law does not save. So what does it do? He says, the scripture, the law, imprisoned everything under sin. Okay, what this means is in your notes, the law was our jailer. The law was our jailer. Uh, you, You may have a version that says that the scripture has shut up everything. It shuts you up. Not the closing of your mouth, the closing of a cell door. It imprisoned you, all right? Anybody that comes to the recognizance that they're a sinner, they can hear that cell door slam shut behind them. You're guilty. You're locked away. Throw away the key. It's irrevocable. It's irretrievable. You did it. You you don't even have an alibi. We got you on video. You're guilty. And in verse 22, it says... It's our, it's our jailer so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. And in verse 25, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Before faith came, wow, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. We've got a new word here. He's our jailer and now he's our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Guardian, the King James says schoolmaster. Schoolmaster. The Greek word there is paedagogos. It means tutor, educator. I like this framing of it in your notes. The law was our mentor. It was our mentor. It taught us. It taught us things. What did it teach us? In verse 25, it says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You see, this law was there to train the people of God, the Israelites. It gave them rules to abide by. It was teaching them things. It was setting them apart. It was saying you're different. You follow a higher standard than the world. And it, it imposed things on them. And there are some very extreme examples in the law. It's the kind of stuff that lost people and atheists and skeptics like to point at and laugh and mock the Bible over. And yes, there are some extreme things in there, but it's to emphasize that we're to be different. The world needs to see something different in the people of God. 
And so that's why they are uh, uh, differentiated through ritual and cleansing and dietary codes and sacrifices and the Sabbath to keep kosher. All of these things, but those are external things. And now the offspring has come, Jesus Christ, and we don't just have external things. We've got something internal now. We're not just distinct on the outside. There's a difference on the inside. And that brings about a change on the outside because of the one who lives in us. And it's a change that we can't bring about on our own. we got to have someone living in us in order to be different externally. And the key to that is number three in your notes. And it's this, that faith alone unites like the law never could. In verse 26, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You're in him. You're in him. So in your notes, we are one with Christ. We're one with him. That's the reason that you can be changed. You can't change apart from being united with him spiritually. What does scripture say? Apart from him, you can do nothing. nothing. You know what nothing is? It's a zero with the edges trimmed off. <laughs> nothing. And not only are we one with Christ in your notes, we are one with each other. He united us with each other. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. He brought us together in one body. Christ is the offspring of Abraham. And if you're in him, what does that make you? Now you're that offspring. Now you're that offspring. And this ultimate promise applies to you. You know what that means? That means you are practicing true Judaism. You're like, but I'm a Christian. <laughs> I, I don't keep the Sabbath. Well, that's, the Sabbath day is not true Judaism anymore. Christ is our Sabbath, you see. And what makes you a true practitioner of true Judaism is you are trusting in the true Jewish Messiah. If Abraham were here on the front row today, he would claim to be a Christian. If Moses were here, he would claim to be a Christian. Daniel and so on and so forth, those guys never ever acquired freedom through the law. They were justified, declared righteous by faith. And if they were here, they'd be worshiping the same Messiah, Jesus Christ, as we Gentiles. Jesus' last prayer, before he was led to Golgotha, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, that they might be one as you and I are one. How did that happen? It happened through faith in a Messiah. And his spirit indwells each of those who come by faith to set us free. Let me ask you today, what and who are you trusting in for your freedom? I want you to bow your heads in just a moment. After the prayer, we've got some things that we want to share with you, so I'd like you to just remain seated for just a little longer. But as we bow, I just want to pray for you today. Heavenly Father, may all in this room recognize the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And to really live that out, Lord, it is for freedom that we have been set free. We are to experience this, God. Not merely to name the name of Christ, 
go to church every weekend, and then functionally live as somebody on whom everything depends. Now, we, we are those who have been set free. We are those for whom the chains have been broken. And God, any work that we do, we do out of love for you and a desire to honor and obey you, not out of fear to escape hellfire, but out of a sense of our identity as the free citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And I pray your blessing to be upon all these free people today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.